1: one of the best things an executive can do is to have self-restraint i always think there should be a hippocratic oath for executives you know the doctor's oath first do no harm because one of the greatest services you can provide as an executive is to get out of the way of true talent and that is harder to do than it seems because everybody thinks they have a contribution to make, and often you do, but to know when to uh, get out of the way, even when it's against your own instincts, uh, can be an incredibly valuable gift to talent.
0: Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am more than excited today, and which is hard to believe because if you ever hear me talk on these podcasts, you realize that I am really, really great at helping you go to sleep at night with my voice. But I am very excited because my guest today is David Kissinger, and this guy has run more companies than uh, God. I mean, he's he's been in the entertainment in business uh, since I was sperm, and uh, and he just has such a long list of people that he's worked with and jobs that he's held. Uh, most recently, for seven years, he's been president of Conoco Productions. Did I pronounce that correct? Yes, Conan O'Brien's company. Why isn't it Conoco? Is it Conoco or Conoco? I like to give it a Hebrew pronunciation, Conoco. Oh. <laughs> What actually is it? It's Konico. Konico. Okay. All right. I screwed up. There you go. Um, and uh, I have so many things to talk to him about, but as always, I like to do a uh, cold <laughs> open to sort of give a six degrees of separation to my guest. And as always, uh, before I start, I just want to say this. I am so grateful for all of you for uh, the support that you've had with the podcast. It's it's I, I It's... It's incredible. Like when I sat down with David before uh, I picked up the mic, he showed me that he subscribed to it. And it just, I don't know, it's just hard to, you know, it's hard to believe that you know a guy 20 years in a certain capacity and he's listening to episodes of of the show and and getting something from it or, or whatever it is that, uh, I, I don't know. It's just—it's just so humbling. I just—I—it's—it's it's just you go into something, anything you go into, and you hope that you're going to make your mark or do something that, that has some kind of influence or some kind of effect on people, whether you're whatever profession you're in. And this was something—I don't know if I've ever said this or not—but this was something that every manager I talked to. Every producer I talked to, every lawyer I talked to, told me, do not do a podcast. <laughs> there are no managers doing podcasts. There are no producers doing podcasts. There are no lawyers doing podcasts. There's a reason, Barry, why no one does podcasts. Because if you say the wrong thing, you're going to be fired. To which I said, hey, listen, I've already been fired. It's okay. I mean, I'm, it happens. I mean, it's going to happen again. at the uh, They said, no, Barry, you don't understand, but what happens if your podcast is actually successful? I said, well, isn't isn't that the goal? Yeah, Barry, but your clients are going to look on the ratings, and they're going to see that you're ahead of them, and they're not going to be happy. And I just thought, you know, I think it's a chance or a risk that you you have to take, and I would hope that client wouldn't say, hey, uh, listen, where were you for the last hour and a half? How come you weren't working on my career? Uh, well, I was meeting with Chris Albrecht for an hour and a half. Oh, well, you're fired. You know, I don't, I don't think that's. You know, I, I didn't think that was going to happen, and it hasn't happened yet. But uh, it's it, it's it's a long race. So, um, but as I sit across here, I, I'm just so grateful that all of you are so supportive and 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 that you get something out of it. And um, what I wanted to talk about, uh, that I just came to me as I look across from David Kissinger and he's running Conaco <laughs> productions, Conaco Productions, is I thought to myself, how I felt <clears throat> during the time when Jay Leno and Conan O'Brien were going through that situation where the Tonight Show was being, May be unceremoniously removed from Jay Leno, and handing the keys to Conan O'Brien. And I think about this, and I have a lot of emotion behind it. And uh, I'll tell you why I have a lot of emotion behind it. Jay Leno. Jay Leno is one of the. If you if you know Jay Leno and you've ever been around Jay Leno, believe it or not. Jay Leno has a lot in common with Conan O'Brien. They're both known as two of the nicest guys to anyone who comes in contact with them. If you go and do a show with Conan O'Brien, you know, he'll come into your dressing room, he'll hang out with you, he'll talk to you, he'll make you feel like a million bucks. Jay Leno you do the tonight show with Jay Leno comes into the dress room how's your family how's your kids what's happening makes you feel comfortable always that way Letterman on the other hand uh, which is a fascinating thing is uncomfortable with the coming into the dress room and talking with artists as a matter of fact only once in all the guests I think I've had on The Letterman Show has he ever come in and said hello to them. And that was in passing from a hallway and it was a chance meeting. And I actually feel honored that I got to be a part of producing the first television show that Worldwide Pants did, which was Welcome to New York with Jim Gaffigan and Christine Bransky. And I got to meet Dave. And again, just a very, very reserved guy, perfectionist, but sort of uncomfortable um, with the contact of people that he didn't really know that well in his circle. So here, Conan and Jay, two people that every person in Hollywood would say, they're not an asshole. They're not bad people. They're they're not people that you look at and say, wow, I don't want to be around that person. Now, because of what happened with Jay and Letterman, and because of the well-documented stories of how Jay Leno hid in an electrical closet to get information so that he could get a one-up on Letterman for the job for The Tonight Show, I think that reflected poorly on Jay. But Jay was the kind of guy that was very persistent. And if you listen to his interview, let's say, on More Stories with Jay Moore, he'll tell you that his persistence paid off. So when he was waiting in line at the comedy store, and there were four people in line before him for an open mic, and one guy said, hey listen, will you wait here? I'm just gonna go get some weed. The other guy would say, could you wait here? I got a this girl called me. I wanna go to the pay phone and call this girl. Another guy would say, hey listen, I can't hold it anymore. I gotta go to the bathroom. And then he would be right there at the front of the line. And so Jay wanted the job, he wanted the gig. And he did everything he could to get the gig on The Tonight Show. And I think that always was across the bear for him because Letterman felt like it was his gig. I think I can safely say that David Letterman felt entitled to The Tonight Show job. He knew that Carson had talked to him and said, hey, you're the heir apparent to this gig. You've done your time done a more than a decade of service the show there you deserve to go up into that job so letterman never rallied never he knew the critics thought he was a genius he knew the critics loved the show he knew the industry loved his show he knew carson loved the show and he knew carson wanted him there But what he didn't realize is that there was more to getting a gig and more to getting what you want in life than hearing it from certain people who you think are the ones that are going to make the decisions or people are going to listen to, when ultimately in every job there's a group of people who make decisions that aren't the person in the chair before you, that aren't the people in the public eye. Lauren Michaels used to say to cast members, when Farley was there and Adam Sandler was there and Janine Garofalo and Mike Myers were, there was an article that said Saturday Night Dead. And they had a big meeting and a lot of the cast members went in and said, Lauren, I don't understand. People go on the street and they tell us how great we are and what a great job we do. And Lauren would always say, people don't tell you to your face what they really believe is going to happen or what they think of you. Always know that. And so that was the fact. So Letterman just sort of stayed back in New York, took his body of work and said, hey, there's no one who can touch this. I'm the guy and Carson wants me. But the fact is that there were more factors involved. And Jay was a politician. Jay was huggable and lovable. Jay was corporate friendly Jay was doing everything in his power because he knew he was the underdog and he knew there was only one job that was going to be available for years and if he didn't seize the moment and he felt that everything was fair and he got the gig and when he got the gig I'll never forget this And I think I've said this on one podcast before. I had a meeting with Jay Leno and Gary Considine, who was the executive producer of the show at the time. And I sat down with them, and I asked a question that they answered. And when they answered the question, I'm embarrassed to say that I laughed out loud. I said, guys, how are you gonna beat Letterman? And Gary Considine looked at Jay Leno, and he looked at me, and he said, with comedy. And I laughed out loud. I said, with comedy? What are you talking about? Letterman does comedy. How are you going to... And they said, no, Barry, Letterman doesn't do a lot of comedy beforehand. Letterman does like a five-minute monologue, then he comes back with a desk piece. And then he brings out his first guest at like 10 minutes of 12, maybe seven minutes of 12. We're going to do comedy from 11:35 to 12:05. And then our last 25 minutes or 30 minutes, we're going to do the three guests. And I'm going to do hard comedy up front. I've been a comedian my whole life. And within two years, we'll beat Letterman. And they were right, because what happened was, even if Letterman had a great first guest, even if he had the President of the United States or Hugh Grant or or Madonna or Mick Jagger, there's always people out there that don't like Mick Jagger, Madonna, or the President. But people don't turn off comedy, and in the end I think he proved not only the persistence of knowing that he had to get the job and anything he could do to get the job and he thought he wouldn't hurt his friendship by doing it but it did unfortunately so the last little part of the story is a similar situation obviously happened with Conan O'Brien and Jay Leno the network goes to Jay Leno and says listen uh, we want you to ride off into the sunset Nicely and quietly And we're going to give you this 10 o'clock show every night And we'll give you a nice deal here And we're going to bring Conan in And it'll be a nice transition And although Conan wasn't happy about it He was excited that he was getting the opportunity for the job And he was excited to be able to go in there and make it happen And so Conan went in and did the 11.30 spot of The Tonight Show, and we all know what happened, America, for some reason, didn't come the way they came for Jay. And that's when things happened with Conan that surprised me. Because he was never a guy who ever pointed to any factor or anything like that. He was always a guy that just was straightforward, talented, got the gig, never having any on-camera experience at all from Saturday Night Live to Conan, put up with so many tough reviews in the beginning of Conan, never addressed it really, just kept going forward saying, I know what I got to do, did it, and persevered, one of the most amazing stories So then, as we all know, NBC went to Jay and said, we want to take off your show at 10. We want to put you on for a half hour from 1130 to noon. And we'd like Conan to do midnight to 1. And Jay, company man, just said, well, I don't want to. Cancel my show. I just got this show. I got all these people working here. We're doing this five-day-a-week thing, but if you want, I'll do what you want. I've been with this company a long time. And he said, okay. And then they went to Conan, and Conan said, no. I'm not moving to midnight. This is The Tonight Show. I'm staying at 11.30 or I'm not doing it and you could argue one way or the other what was the right or wrong thing to do whether he should stick to his guns or not in my mind as I think back I'm I'm actually respect Conan for sticking to his guns and saying look I signed up for the 1130 that's the tonight show it's not the next day show and I don't want to be in a situation where Jay's on for a half hour and I'm on. I don't want to do that. I'm not going to do that, which I thought was admirable. But then what was tough was the personal attacks of Jay Leno. Amazing people like Jimmy Kimmel took Jay Leno to school on a live broadcast on a big screen of The Tonight Show. And Jay, true to the kind of person he was, he could have cut the whole segment, but he didn't. He kept it on, showing Jimmy Kimmel shitting all over him, saying how selfish he was to even engage NBC and be able to go on that spot. And so one of the things that I learned there, which shocked me, was that Even the greatest people in the world, even the most successful people in the world, even the nicest people in the world. I'm sitting across from David Kissinger, who I swear to you on a stack of Bibles, is one of the nicest human beings I've ever met in the business. We're all capable of making errors in judgment even if we don't think they're errors in judgment we're all capable of doing something or saying something that maybe might be better left said or kept to ourselves because whatever we do whether we hide in a electrical closet or we say a negative thing about one of our peers or we go on live television and we dress somebody down on their own show we can never take those things back and they're always there on our permanent record card, and that doesn't mean that Jimmy Kimmel isn't successful, and that doesn't mean that Jay Leno isn't successful, because talent always rules, and I love Conan O'Brien. I love his show. I love what he does. I love how he's persevered. And and I know he's on TBS, and I know he's happy, and he runs his own company, and he sells shows. But in the end, if there was a true serum in his veins, I know that he'd want to be on The Tonight Show with that legacy continuing on. And I know that if he had to do it over again, I am sure that there are things that he might have done differently that would have helped him to create a situation where he had that franchise today and in the future for the next decade. So again, my lesson to all of you is the fact that uh, I think that if you're going for something, again, make sure you do everything in your power to um, cover cover every variable, do everything you can to make sure you get it, you keep it, and my guest david kissinger is a great example of the fact of all these positions that he's held that he keeps them he's great at them and yes they have a finite point at each one but in the end when he leaves those positions everybody looks at him with respect and honor and i think in the end even though conan is a tbs i truly look at conan with respect and honor Barry Katz.
1: Back in the house! 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 Let's do this!
0: Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a -a one-of-a-kind, all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to berrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, Instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. I want to talk about a couple of things, because I think this is what's so hard about television. Um, and you tell me if I'm I'm high here. Super fun night, okay? I, I happen to have a client uh, who was a, a recurring on the show, uh, Dana Dute. Oh, and uh, I've been there great. A, a number of times on the show. And... I found it to be a very, very original and unique show. I found her to be you know, Louie Anderson always told me, America loves the fat guy. Now uh and and America, I think, really loved her. And when I saw her on the set, although it was in a different kind of way, she was a leader on the set she was a force on the set and i thought it was a very different take on on a half hour comedy and i was really i thought it was produced really well i thought it had great funny moments i thought the actors and actresses were were cast very interesting and well i didn't think they were i thought they were well above average when you when you look at a show like that and 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 just America just doesn't rally around it and and you're, you know, you're a smart guy and so are the executives on your team and everybody at the network and you put something forward and it just doesn't take what, I mean, what do you say to yourself about it? Is there, is there anything you can take from that or the, cause I don't understand myself sometimes when I see something great or that's well above average, that just people don't, don't want to watch as much as, as things that are very pedestrian and very, very mainstream and very rehashed. And there was nothing about that show that I can even take of any show on television that was similar.
1: And I'm back in the fetal position.
0: (laughs) Uh, No, you know, I think,
1: uh, you're being very generous about the show. I think there was much about it. That was wonderful. Uh, I think that sitcoms on network television now are in a kind of transitional moment. And we were somewhat symptomatic of that. We had an incredibly talented star in Rebel Wilson who had a sensibility that if she had been left unfettered, would have taken the show in a darker, weirder, more subversive direction which probably would have made for a better show at the end of the day. I think she was trying to uh, conform to what she thought network television wanted, and sometimes that kind of made her uh, a little schizophrenic and made the tone of the show alternately very sentimental and then very... Um, edgy in ways that didn't mesh completely but look I'm proud of a lot of the work that was on it and again given time would Rebel and John Regie, who was the showrunner and the other talented people involved have found the John is an incredible, incredible showrunner. A very special guy uh, so yeah we didn't get that chance as Conan has a little saying that I often think about, which is, you know, sometimes the souffle just doesn't rise. And so much of it is about serendipity. It's just getting all those ingredients at exactly the right time,
0: and uh, something special happens. And coincidentally, uh, Pete Holmes. Now this is a guy, if, if you know Pete Holmes, you meet Pete Holmes, I mean, you you just want to just be next to the guy all you don't you don't you don't you just want to be in the room with the guy as many moments as you can you can't it's infectious there's just something about him he's a larger than life personality and he's got that kind of way about him that's just so accessible and you would think that okay this is the perfect guy to rally around to put a show on and you're betting, you're putting everything, when you put a talk show what when you put a sitcom on, as much as you want to say, you're not putting all your eggs in one basket because you develop sitcoms, you have things going. But when you put your name on a talk show and then you decide to put that talk show after your own brand and your own thing, you are, that's the, that's, that. you're all in. You are all in, and you are making a statement. If a sitcom gets canceled, hey, I tried, I did whatever, but if you put your name on a talk show, that's huge. And so you and the company and Conan, you put the bet on Pete Holmes. I don't know anybody who met Pete Holmes that thinks that that was a bad bet. Now, granted, were there people out there that had more experience than Pete Holmes? Yes, but Conan got a talk show. He had no experience. So Pete had a thousand times more experienced than conan did when he got on again when you look at something like that and it goes on and you, you have everything and you're working on everything and there's a whole group of people there are like a hundred people working on this show and the network is behind it and and and, and what's great about um Michael Wright as he'll always say, you know, the whole thing is is finding great talent and get the fuck out of the way. And and but Conan was a guy who was a mentor. So so nobody had to get out of the way. If Pete ever wanted to go to anybody, go to Conan, how do I feel about this? What and he had a mentor right there all the time. So in in your opinion as a as somebody who's at the top of the chain at this company, what was it that you felt that, you know you didn't see that america saw that said hey again fun guy great guy content was fun the show you didn't watch the show and say i hate that you know it's like uh, you, you can't watch the guy and hate him so what do you think it was there that that happened i think the
1: the key element in a lot of these stories that we're talking about is time i have no doubt that given more time, Pete Holmes would have become an addiction for people. He is just too authentically delightful. Um, And you're absolutely right that it was not a a decision that anybody took lightly to kind of position him as the guy to follow Conan. Uh, And Conan genuinely viewed him as a uh protege and somebody who shared a lot of the same energy and sensibility so beyond that element i can't really draw a single conclusion about what didn't work for the pete holmes show uh i believe in pete holmes Pete holmes is going to have an amazing career and uh we haven't seen the last of him so I don't really dwell on exactly what went wrong. I think the joy of this business is we all are sort of pursuing this elusive idea of success and you never fully get it. You know, you just have to uh, keep pursuing it. And that's the fun of it. I guess no, some
0: people get it. No, <laughs> I just, I just think it's real. Cause I, I'm, I just, sometimes I just, I try to know what's in the head of somebody who's in the position of your, like I guess to use the example Jimmy Fallon takes over the tonight show and in seconds it's it's caught on and people are watching and they're telling people and they're and they're moving forward and and it's like and he goes on and with so much humility what did he say uh Less people have walked on the moon that have had a chance to do these things. If I'm lucky enough that you, the audience, will allow me to be here. I'll do everything I can to entertain you. It was like like I wanted to cry right then and there. But the point is he went on and immediately the country spoke and said, we want to watch you. And, And I've met Jimmy. I know Jimmy my whole career, and I know Pete Holmes. Both you could sit in a room with, and you just love it. But yet one goes on and 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 people rally around the other one goes on and they don't. And I I just wondered from the perspective of a president of a company, if there's anything more than just time.
1: Well, I think the stars have to align. It has to be an environment where the audience uh, is ready to embrace somebody. I think Jimmy has been positioned incredibly well. He's a very special talent. There's a. There's no aura of uncertainty about it. He's been ordained to be the host of The Tonight Show. I think they've launched it brilliantly. There's a feeling of celebration that the show brings, a kind of unselfconscious joy. So they've done a lot of things right. I think Pete Holmes did a lot of things right, but it just didn't have the energy surrounding it of being a must-watch event that the audience felt they had to uh, see. So, again, uh, you know, the other reality is to launch a show, a late-night talk show at midnight on cable is much more difficult. So, uh, you know, again, I, I don't look back. I'm glad we tried, and I'm proud of the work that was done, and I know that Pete Holmes is going to have huge success in one venue or
0: another. I would agree with that. All right, let's do a little six degrees of separation here. I'm going to mention some names, some things, whatever. Just a little story, something, a little tidbit of something you might want to say, short and sweet. Uh, I've kept you here for 17 hours, and, uh, and uh, I'm sorry about that. All right. No, it's a a dream come true. All right. Well, for me, too. Uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg. Jeffrey Katzenberg has
1: an incredible energy. I was uh, at Disney for the last four years of his um, leadership there, and I can say that the moment he left, the, the vitality of the place dipped in such a palpable way um and i've spoken to him over the years from time to time and it's always just such a reminder that he never he never tires of the the hard work that um he brings to the business and his his love of the business is infectious andy richter andy richter is a talent who is very modest about his talents what Andy can do in the most effortless seeming way is remarkable you know he he kind of likes to uh pass himself off as a bit of a slouch who doesn't try that hard but the truth is that in that comedy brain of his is so much originality and such humanity that Every day, uh, he just knocks it out of the park in the most uh, surprising ways. Uh, I love the guy. The creator of Home Improvement and Roseanne, Matt Williams. You know, again, I did not work directly with Matt. He had become such a an enormous uh, success by the time I arrived at Disney. I only observed him from afar. Uh, and I learned a lot about him from listening to your podcast. So that's pretty much all I can say about Matt. Ellen. Ellen is one of those authentic comedy talents who just can go on stage and make people laugh in such a spontaneous and inventive way. And it's it seems to be an innate Ability that she was born with and it's it's very rare indeed I, I've been around maybe half a dozen comedians in my career who have that kind of talent and she's absolutely at the top of that list. Agree. Battlestar Galactica I love to say that Battlestar Galactica is a show that is far better than it had any right to be <laughs> that was a show that the universal (laughs) library owned. And if you ever watched the original show without being too mean about it, it's pretty crummy. It's a piece (laughs) of sort of pop culture debris that we inherited. And then thanks to the, uh, incredible producing talent of David Ike and Ron Moore, they turned it into this very, Profound, interesting, challenging, dark show that had a lot to say about the post 11 world, and uh, that was not something any of, any of us expected. But it was it was pretty exciting to watch. Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle is just a guy who is sort of magical, and you know far better than I do that from an incredibly young age, Dave just exhibited the kind of talent that comes around once in a generation. And so it was, I think, looking back, it was inevitable that he was going to make his mark sooner or later. What I certainly didn't anticipate was the way he would sort of exit the stage of pop culture. But I think it's been fascinating to observe what his career has uh done since the huge kind of uh dramatic meltdown um and i i think he may yet surprise us by um the great
0: work he's going to continue to do in his life absolutely chris rock calls him the prince like prince of comedy it's yeah. unbelievable uh dick wolf Dick Wolf is just a
1: force to be reckoned with. Um he loves the art of the sale. He loves the art of a well-crafted story. He is tireless. There seems to be no end to his ambition and uh he's kind of an old school mogul combined with a true writer. It's a very unique individual. And uh, I was really lucky to hang out with him for a few years. Steve Carell. Steve, as everybody knows, is one of the truly nice people in our business. I uh, fell in love with Steve's work on the daily show and made a, very modest deal with him at universal as a talent holding deal which then led to him being cast in the office and looking back i'm absolutely convinced that nobody could have played that role other than steve we had some brilliant auditions again um i don't i think it's well known that bob odenkirk was one of the people who read for it. And Bob was spot on bringing essentially the same kind of energy that Ricky Gervais brought to the role in England, which was that very uncomfortable, somewhat dark kind of energy. What Steve brought to it. And I remember him saying this to me very early in the series was an understanding that this character, Michael Scott was just a guy Who desperately needed a hug (laughs) and that sweetness and vulnerability made a lot of his very uh, bad choices forgivable and and actually lovable so uh, we got very lucky again to have Steve in that role Conan O'Brien well I think I've already (laughs) Bowed to uh, the the greatness of Conan a lot in this podcast, but I, amongst other things, I I feel so blessed that I work for a guy who, aside from being an incredible talent, is just a genuinely thoughtful, dependable, loyal person. So in a business where, as the various fetal positions that I've assumed over the last few hours shows, can be very cruel, I'm in this situation with a guy I just trust implicitly. And that's a really rare and lucky thing. And then on top of that, he is the funniest person I've ever been around. And I've been around some funny people,
0: including you, Barry. <laughs> just not today <laughs> before I get into the final stuff tell me one story hey everybody let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success it's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition And start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you. To help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. With you and your dad. That you look back on and you feel the sense of just... You know, my dad passed away when I was four. So I never had that moment where you could look back and, you know, the, it really makes you feel something inside that you'll always remember that moment or that story or that thing that happened that just you carry with you through every job, every experience, every relationship, everything you have. And, um, I was wondering if there was some, story or something you could share about your relationship with your dad, something that happened that sort of always goes back to you and, and pulls at your heart a little bit.
1: Wow. It's hard to distill it to one. Uh, and I'm so fortunate that he's still alive and still vibrant. 91, and 91. And we're very close and, uh, we speak all the time. And he's always been incredibly supportive to me in my career, even though it's clear to me he has no comprehension of what I do. Uh, He's not, you know, a big sitcom consumer. Um, But he's given me uh, a real sense of the, the value of tenacity in this life. You know, Without being too corny about it, I'll tell you a moment that's sort of frozen in time for me, which is when I was 12 years old, he was sworn in as Secretary of State in the White House. And my grandparents and my sister and I stood on a stage with him next to the President of the United States. And this was happening in a uh, a world where nobody with an accent, nobody who had been born in a foreign country had ever been Secretary of State before. And my grandparents were both refugees from Nazi Germany who had lost most of their family in the Holocaust. So that gave me an insight into... Uh, what's possible in this country. And, uh, you know, it's a source of pride to this day to think how he arrived in this country with nothing and was able to um, achieve that. And more importantly, it wasn't just getting a job. For him, it was the opportunity to try to work on things that he had spent his entire life studying and pondering and trying to figure out. So even if it's as silly as a sitcom, I think there is a lesson for, for me to, uh, to try to do really good work even in the face of adversity. But uh, yeah, I'm not trying to (laughs) compare uh the the gravity of that to uh the kind of work that we do um but it it's it's about a way of life
0: absolutely tell me your biggest disappointment in show business
1: well being a fan of the show i knew you were going to ask that <laughs> um there's so many you know the uh a line that often kind of uh occurs to me it's from an obscure song by a band called they might be giants and the line the line is uh if it wasn't for disappointment i wouldn't have any appointments (laughs) (laughs) and i think you know this business it, it is inevitable that disappointment crops up a lot um i think the fact that i got to work with Dave Chappelle for many years without um, coming up with a vehicle that w- would really uh, make use of his talents, I look back on as one of the big disappointments of of that
0: career. Me too. Your proudest moment in show business. I can't, again, I, I can't really
1: uh, distill it to one moment. I think it's sort of a a gradual dawning awareness that some of the shows that I've worked on have touched people's lives the way the shows that I loved as a kid touched people's lives. You know, I've had the opportunity to travel all around the world and House, I'm told, was the most popular show in the entire world for a good long stretch of time. And learning that was pretty mind blowing to have been a part of something that became that kind of uh,
0: a global experience. Tell me a question that no one's ever asked you that you've always wanted to answer.
1: (laughs) You know, what does surprise people is that I really have no uh, qualms about being asked about my father's career. I consider myself so lucky to have grown up around the the kinds of experiences that I saw so you know people rarely i think people tiptoe around asking me what was richard nixon like uh so that's a question that i uh, i don't mind answering
0: And did Richard Nixon, was there ever a time when you were a 12 year old or a teenager where you found yourself alone in a room with Richard Nixon and he was saying something to you and what was it that he said to you? I have
1: distinct memories. You know, Nixon used to spend the summer in San Clemente and so my father would have to come out to San Clemente and they would rent a house for him, which, uh, Luckily, was on the beach, and I would get to spend the summer there, and it was great. But frequently, I would be awake on a Saturday morning long before anybody else in the house, and we, we would be staying in this modern house that was largely glass. And I'd be sitting there watching um, the banana splits, and the next thing I know... The president of the United States is rapping on the glass, (laughs) waving at me as he took a solitary walk down the beach and I would like jump out of my (laughs) chair in my pajamas and salute. Uh, So it was a very surreal experience.
0: (laughs) That's crazy. All right, man. The last question that I always love to ask is you've been around so many executives, so many great artists. If you had to, what advice would you give to the young artist or young executive starting out that they're just trying to figure out a way to find their way to get to the point where they have the kind of artistic careers of Conan or Ellen or Chappelle or the executive careers of people like Jeffrey Katzenberg, Barry Diller, or even yourself?
1: Well, in terms of giving advice to artists, I would say if they need advice from me, they're in big trouble. <laughs> There's a big distinction. I would say, you know, truly, the the talented people who have a burning desire to perform or write need no advice from the likes of me. That's, I would be very presumptuous to even offer advice. For executives, I think the one... Perspective I have that I like to try to offer is one of the best things an executive can do is to have self-restraint. I always think there should be a Hippocratic oath for executives, you know, the doctor's oath, first do no harm, because one of the greatest services you can provide as an executive is to get out of the way of true talent. And that is harder to do than it seems because everybody thinks they have a contribution to make, and often you do. But to know when to uh, get out of the way, even when it's against your own instincts,
0: uh, can be an incredibly valuable gift to talent. Well, David Kissinger, you have been a gift today, man. This has been unbelievable. This has been so great. I I can't even tell you how inspirational this is going to be to so many different people. And I'm only embarrassed and sorry that I didn't reach out to you sooner to come on the show because uh, um, uh, people are going to love this. And I'm very grateful. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. I'm thrilled to have been here. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends.
1: you get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for- the dreamers they have all to gain. It's never quite over, till so it all feels the same. You pick your own
0: poison, dig your own